Welcome back to the program. We live in a world of images. Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, all catered to that proverbial idea that a picture is worth a thousand words. Yet perhaps it's because we have so many images or they're coming at us so fast. Few truly capture the essence of any particular moment or ethos. However, when we look back at the work of famed photographer Dorothea Lang, it's different. Her striking black and white images taken during the Depression years and depicting those on the margins of society are a kind of tabula rosa for understanding a place, a time, a way of life. Dorothea Lang will be the subject of a PBS documentary on the American Masters series, and Chronicle Books has just released a career-spanning collection of her work entitled Dorothea Lang, Grab a Hunk of Lightning. The new volume is written and curated by her goddaughter Elizabeth Partridge. Elizabeth Partridge graduated with a degree in women's studies from the University of California, Berkeley. She's an acclaimed author of more than a dozen books, as well as biographies of Dorothea Lang, Woody Guthrie, and John Lennon. And it is my pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Partridge here to talk about Dorothea Lang, Grab a Hunk of Lightning. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Tell us first a little bit about your relationship with her and, and how you became her goddaughter. Uh, Dorothea was was a very good friend of my grandmother, Imogen Cunningham, who was another photographer in the San Francisco Bay Area. And my dad grew up and just got hooked on photography from a very young age. So when he was about 17, his mom sent him out to work with a couple of her, uh, what she called family friends. So first he went and worked with um, Ansel Adams, and then he went and worked with Dorothea Lang, and the two of them really clicked. Um, she'd known him all growing all of his growing up years, but now he was her assistant, and he drove her around and carried her cameras, worked in her dark room developing her film, whatever she needed, he did. So when he married and the five of us kids came along, we became kind of molded into the family, and we were considered the godchildren. So we spent all of our holidays, actually, with Dorothea. She lived right across town from us. So Thanksgiving, Christmas, Fourth of July, we were with Dorothea's family. Tell us a little bit about her beginnings, really, as a portrait photographer uh, here in San Francisco. Yeah, she um, came out uh, from New York to San Francisco. She she set off to go on a round-the-world trip and got as far as San Francisco when um, she and her friend Francie had their money stolen. And so by the next day, she had a job here in San Francisco. uh, And she went from, you know, just working at a photo counter to very quickly establishing a fantastic clientele of the wealthy San Franciscans. And she did portrait photography. And she really, she called herself a tradesman. She really and truly tried to capture each person as best she could within that formula. Talk a little bit about her passion for photography, how it evolved over time. Oh, that's a big question, (laughs) which is one that I loved looking at putting this book together. You know, so she started out, you know, just even as a child, highly visual, loving photographs. She loved to look through magazines, she loved to look at books, and when she began photographing, she just she just loved the whole craft of photography, photography and the art of it, and making a really good photograph. So at first she was a tradesman by her own definition, 
And then while she was doing that work and the depression hit the country and just cut deeper and deeper, and she began to realize she needed to do something. She didn't know what, but she just took her camera and went out into the streets. And that was the beginning of her working as a documentary photographer. And her point as a documentary photographer was to make an image that would make you really look at that image and say, you know, not not where was this taken, but that such things could be. She really wanted people to be just hit with the impact of the conditions that people were living in and really how well they were doing considering on a kind of an emotional, personal, spiritual level. You know, she always tried to capture people's dignity in the most difficult of circumstances, which is just an amazing taut line that she was able to draw that gives just tremendous power to her images. In many ways, there were two things that were going on. One, her view of the world was shaping the images that she captured, but the more she saw, the more she captured these images, the more her view of the world would become enhanced in so many ways. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's a great way to put it. It's it's like a um, one of those yin yang symbols, you know, that each fed the other. Talk a little bit about how she came to be working for the government for a number of federal agencies and doing some of the pictures that she did. Right. Well, um, at first, when she went out photographing on the streets of San Francisco, she was just doing it because she was. In- impelled or compelled to get out there and take the photographs. But pretty early on, she her photography was seen by a sociology professor, Paul Taylor, at the University of California, Berkeley. And he hired, he, first he bought one photograph of hers to illustrate an article he was writing about the worker strike that was going on in San Francisco. But then they began going out together and he taught her how to photograph out in the field. Now, she'd before that been working in the city. And she quickly got a job working for the Farm Security Administration, also called the FSA. The FSA was set up in Washington, D.C., and the point was that she and there were a number of other photographers, and they were photographing conditions of the Great Depression all around the United States. And the point was to get these photographs and get them out into magazines and newspapers so people would understand what was going on in the United States and also to get them before Congress so that um, money could be allocated for aid of various kinds. So that was her first work was uh, for the FSA. Then during World War II, she was asked to photograph the Japanese-American evacuation. Now, this was a very different situation for her. She was totally in line with what the Farm Security Administration was trying to do. With the internment of the Japanese-Americans, she was horrified by what was happening. She absolutely was opposed to what the government was doing. They wanted her to document in order to prove what a careful process they were doing. But she felt... It was such an erosion of civil liberties to take someone just on the basis of, as she said, the blood coursing through their veins and put them in 
basically jail for the duration of the war. So she decided to do the job anyway, and she embraced it with enthusiasm because she was like, no, we do need a document of this process. It is critically important. She was... She was, it was a very hard uh, job for her to do because she was not allowed to photograph the barbed wire fencing, the guard towers with the guns, things like the toilet situations, which were just, you know, like a room with toilets in it without privacy. So there was very, they were very delineated in what she wasn't allowed to photograph. But she managed once again to show the dignity of people in an absolutely impossible situation. But that was actually the beginning of a lot of health problems for her because it was, uh, uh, she was so upset by the whole situation. And Dorothea was an incredibly hard worker. Nothing would stop her from photographing dawn to dusk. You know, poor health, not eating, it didn't matter. She would, she would just as she said, go it, with her, it was always expenditure to the last ditch. Did she see herself as a political person? That's a really interesting question. She, she was somewhat moderated in her politics because for her, I mean, it's not, it's, she was, she had very strong political feelings, but she was strategic. What she wanted was for her images to speak for her. She didn't want to, you know, get too far out in her political statements uh, because she wanted to do it with her photography. But, you know, for example, she and her husband, you know, joined um, groups that were against the Japanese internment and uh, welcomed Japanese Americans back uh, into out of the internment camps and back into regular American life, which not everyone at that time was doing. Believe me, it's hard for us to remember that. But it was, you know, there was there had been so much anti-Japanese propaganda. It was a very difficult time. How did she see the relationship between her political views and what she thought her work would stand for in that regard, as you've been talking about, and the artistic merits? I mean, the idea that her work was exhibited shortly after her death at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Talk about that dichotomy between the art and the politics. Yeah, that was a huge dichotomy for her. That was really, really big. She... um Initially, when she was young, she considered uh, people who said they were an artist to be oh, kind of working off of the image of what other people thought an artist was, that they weren't true artists. So her first husband, Maynard Dixon, very carefully called himself a painter, not an artist. And as I said, she defined herself first as a um, as a crafts uh, tradesman, then as a documentary photographer. And that was her kind of lifelong um, self, self-definition. self Towards the end of her life, in 1958, she went on a long, long, many months trip with her husband uh, through Asia and into the Middle East photographing. It was a different experience for her. She could photograph what she knew and loved, 
people working in fields, marketplaces, women um, taking care of their families, all things that were very familiar to her, but she no longer understood the politics. She could no longer say, cotton, this is a cotton strike. She just didn't have the context to be in the depth to understand what she was seeing. So her photography became very beautiful and lyrical. It's like the artistic side of her came out during these field, this, uh, these world trips, which was really amazing that, that she had this whole evolution over her lifetime. Then in the last year and a half or so of her life, she was putting together this retrospective of her photography for Museum of Modern Art in New York. And the curator, John Sarkowski, he was very on to the beauty of her photography. And he didn't want her, this retrospective show of her life's work, to be a political statement. He wanted it to be an artistic statement. And he really helped shape the way that that material was presented. And uh, at the very end of her life, Dorothea acknowledged maybe, just maybe, she was an artist. How did she feel about Migrant Mother is perhaps her most famous piece of work? Yeah. You know, Migrant Mother was something she did while she was in the FSA in 1936. And, you know, this is the famous image with the mother with her hand up to her face with three little children around her. And you just, you're, it breaks your heart because you, you just can feel so much of the desperation of this woman to take care of these children in terrible situations. So she took that photograph and it belonged to the government. It didn't belong to her. And it became the icon of the great American dep- of the Great American Depression. So she felt that that photograph belonged to the world. She, she said she'd seen it reproduced so many times, so many ways, that it no longer felt it belonged to her. Talk a little more about that and, and what she wanted to have happen with it. Um, at the very end of her life, when she was doing the MoMA show, she said to the curator, I don't even want to have this photograph in the show. <laughs> it's been seen so many times. And he's like, uh, no, you have to have this photograph in the show. So, uh, indeed, it was in the show. And because it is, of course, her most famous image. It is her iconic image as well as the iconic image of the Great Depression. So, there it was in the show. Now, when I did my book, one of the things I found listening back to tapes, um, there were about 20 hours of tape recording made as she was putting the show together, which was wonderful for me. I was able to um, hear all the things that she was thinking about as she put the show together. One of the things she was talking about is how she would like to take that photograph and put it in context with other photographs she took at the same time. So I had a blast doing that. I was able to do a double-page spread putting Migrant Mother with other photographs, not just of her taking pictures of the Migrant Mother, because she took five or six of them, but the other situations surrounding the Migrant Mother at that time, the other pea pickers who were frozen out. What were some of her personal favorites? You know, that's always a tricky question for a photographer. <laughs> they, they, they will never own a favorite 
photo. Well, I shouldn't, of course, make a global statement about all photographers, but um, the ones I've been around, they uh, usually their favorite photograph is like the next one they're going to take. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, 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 as Dorothea said, I've never been able to break the habit of thinking everything is ahead. So she didn't have favorites. She did talk about looking back through her life's work. She mused a lot about what made a particular day, what made those photographs beautiful, brilliant, incredible, all working together. And another day, photography would be flat, uninteresting. She was like, was it my health? Was it the weather? You know, she really wondered what affected her photography in a way that she didn't even know. But she'd go through her photographs and she'd be like, oh, look at this, you know, and she she would remark on things. Like, I remember her talking about this one photograph she took um, when she was in Utah. And she's like, look at that. Look at those mountains sticking up there and everything, just like Ansel Adams. Well, not quite like Ansel Adams, but almost. So, you know, there's this dialogue going on with photographers all the time. Their work, other people's work, what they caught. Um, so, you know, so it's a, it's a complicated field. What other photographers and or artists had an influence on her? Whose work did she admire and look up to? Hmm. You know, I think she was pretty omnivorous. Mm-hmm. She, um, you know, these these, these um, California photographers of the time, certainly the ones, you know, that she was working around, working with, they all knew each other. They would go, when they would go visit each other, they would trade photographs. You know, they'd be like, hey, look what I just took and just sort of slide a photograph across the table and leave it there when they left. You know, it was a very fluid world. And I know they influenced each other, and they the differences they had were political. So, um, you know, Dorothea's work was much more political than, say, Ansel's work or Dorothea's work, I mean, uh, or Imogen's work. Mm-hmm. You know, they were more into photographing things that were beautiful. So um, I think they traded... Uh, um, I want to almost say love. They traded the love of photography with one another, um, but not what the point was of their work. In the post-Depression period, as as came into the 40s and then the 50s, talk about the things that interested her in terms of her images beyond the Depression-era pictures that we remember so well. Right. As she goes into the 40s and 50s, and after the Japanese-American internment, there was a long period for her of very poor health, where I think it was seven years she was unable to pick up a camera. Um, But then as she gradually began photographing again, she started photographing everyday life. And that gave her a lot of pleasure, to just take her camera out onto the streets and photograph urban life, people shopping, people gardening, just whatever caught her eye. Uh, Then she began doing magazine um, assignments for Life magazine. And so she would pick something that interested her. Like she did a whole series on the public defender um, because she thought, you know, that's an interesting political subject is what what does a public defender do? 
what's what's this life like for a public defender in the court courtroom? She also was incredibly passionate about the beauty of California and the problems we were having as our state was basically overrun. I mean, we had such a huge influx of population after the war into California. And she felt that it just ripped the state in half. So she did an absolutely beautiful set of photographs. And by that, I mean she took multiple trips to photograph in the Berryessa Valley. She wanted to photograph uh, what happened when the, the, the need for water was so great in the San Francisco Bay Area that the Berryessa Valley was dammed up. And there was a whole little community there, a town and all the ranchers that surrounded the town. And she wanted to photograph the death of a valley. She wanted mm-hmm. to show how that that life was taken away. And she did an just absolutely beautiful, beautiful set of photographs. But Life magazine decided not to publish them. But they uh, later came out um, in Aperture magazine as an entire issue of the magazine because they were so um, evocative and beautiful. And they told the story that she, she was really... Um, you know, really a conservationist uh, from very early on uh, because of a lot of her work that she'd done uh, during the Depression was seeing people's relationship to the land and how that changed, you know, for for the people who were blown out of Oklahoma, they were blown off their land. She also photographed extensively throughout the South where, as she said, she had to photograph how people were bound to the land, you know, the whole tenant-landlord situation of how those kinds of farms worked in the South was a very different thing for her. So she had, you know, she really had national experience with how people were related to the land. And tell us a little bit about this volume, about Grab a Hunk of Lightning. This was a wonderful book for me to put together. I was um, only 14 when Dorothea died, and that's that age where you start picking your head up and looking at the adults around you and thinking, well, what do they do? (laughs) You know, instead of wanting to play Parcheesi with the other kids before dinner, I was like, who are these adults? So for me, it was um, a tremendous loss of someone who was, you know, she was truly the matriarch of our family. So one of the things I wanted to do, um, now that I'm older, I could look at her life and and say, well, how did how did she change over her life? What were her goals as a photographer and an artist? And so I had just a blast going back through all her journals and her letters and her tapes and 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 all her proof sheets of her life and photography and putting together a whole arc of her work. Um, I tried to, you know, I included, you know, the photographs that are naturally we're all drawn to that are more well known, but I also got in, oh, probably 15 or 16 photographs that um, had never been seen before because I felt like, well, if I'm putting together this book, I want to get a hold of photographs that I can put in this book so other people can see them and, and her work will get a little more widely seen. You know, it might be eight years before someone pulls this book off a library shelf, but then they can look at some of those photographs and go, oh, look at this work Dorothea did. So I tried to 
capture capture those photographs that you know just weren't so well known and that was that was really fun you know that's like um that's like a treasure hunt to do that and grab a hunk of lightning where does that title come from that comes from something Dorothea said when she was first working as a um uh doing her portrait photography work she was when she was she was looking out her window one day and she saw these homeless men who had come to the corner to to a stop underneath her uh, studio which was up on the second floor and she was looking down at these men who just kind of stopped there and didn't know where to go further you know they'd come all the way west and here they were and now what were they going to do and she said you know what i got to I got to just get out there and take some photographs. So she took her camera out on the streets and she photographed what became her second most well-known image, the White Angel Breadline, which is a man with a tin cup kind of leaning on a fence with everyone behind him is facing away from him. And you just feel this tremendous desolation. They're all waiting for um, some soup at the White Angel Breadline. She goes back to her studio. She developed her film. She printed the photograph, and she got it on the wall. And she said she just wanted to see if she could grab a hunk of lightning in 24 hours and get that photograph up on the wall. And she did. And it was kind of the beginning of a big change in her life. Elizabeth Partridge, the volume just out from Chronicle Books, is Dorothea Lang, Grab a Hunk of Lightning. The PBS series will be airing in January. Elizabeth, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.